Welcome to the Six Degree Podcast, the podcast where we grill our guests about the things that make them tick and find out how human connection plays a role in their life. I'm your host, Emily Merrill. Hello, and welcome back to the Six Degree with Emily Merrill, the podcast where we grill our guests about the things that make them tick and find out how human connection plays a role in their life. I'm your host, Emily, and today I'm thrilled to have my friend Lindsay Lawless as our guest. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited that we can do this. You know, we're now entering month, got it. We're in month three. We're like past entering. We're, we're past month <laughs> three of whatever this new normal is. And um, where are you calling us from right now? So I am actually in Hot Springs, Arkansas, which is my hometown, visiting my mom. Uh, I'm, you know, of course, from New York originally. Uh, and we are making our way down to Austin, Texas, because we are looking at some uh, potential second home opportunities and some rental investments. Well, also from New York to like Austin or Arkansas, I feel like they're like, you know, the down payment, it's like $15,000 and, you know, your interest rate is 2% and you're like, why do I live in New York again? This is so <laughs> cheap. My closing costs were more than 15000 in New York. <laughs> right? It's crazy. My One of my girlfriends is in Kentucky right now and she's sending me mansions she's potentially going to move to and base herself out of Kentucky, live in a said mansion and then travel from there. And I'm like, wow, what, why do we prioritize our locations? so much. I feel like, um, you know, shelter in place has definitely given people a glimpse into like what a life could look like in more space than open air. Totally. And I think two people are seeing that, um, the things that once mattered don't necessarily matter as much anymore. And they're really reevaluating their priorities and saying, okay, well, these are actually the things that are most valuable to me. And, um, I can get that anywhere. Or, you know what I mean, whether that means spending more time with family or going online and creating more of a virtual lifestyle or business, um, being able to network remotely, like there's so much kind of like ease of access now that, you know, you don't necessarily have to be in a major city to quote unquote make it. Yeah, I'm so eager to see how that evolves. I mean, still being in San Francisco, I keep trying to persuade my husband. I'm like, this is amazing. We'll meet Lindsay down in Austin or move to gosh, I don't even know where I'd want to move. Just do hashtag van life for a little bit or something. Yeah, digital um, nomad lifestyle. Right? Just not be as limited to what we have to do for, um, you know, where we have to be based on our job. If we can do it all from the comfort of our bed, like I'm doing right now. But Lindsay, so you grew up in Hot Springs. It's called Hot Springs? Arkansas? Yeah, Hot Springs National Park. It's one of the Is first hot, national parks. Are there actually hot springs there? I there are. Okay. There are hot springs. They have bathhouses where you can go and like soak in the hot springs. They have like um, wells like coming out of the ground that you can go put your feet in or fill up your water bottle at. That sounds amazing and so exactly what I want my next vacation. Okay, so cool. Change of vacation and apart and like you know home hunting, going to Hot Springs, Arkansas. So how did you get from Hot Springs, Arkansas to New York City, and you became this? You're, I would say, like this boss lady who became a boss of boss woman community, and then also you were an accountant. How did how did you make that transition from a little town in Arkansas to the big city? Sure. So it was not a linear path. I will say that um, <laughs> I uh, went from Arkansas. Uh, I went to the University of Arkansas for a little bit. Um, you know, nothing but love for the Razorbacks, but it was not for me. 
so I already, I already knew I backs. wanted to leave. Yeah. <laughs> what is it? What is a razorback? Um, it's essentially like a wild boar or like a hog. Oh, the hogs, okay. they call them. H A W G S. Welcome to the South. <laughs> wow. Okay. Learning so much right now. I feel like I'm speaking with someone in a different country. This is and great. you have to say y'all. If you don't say y'all, then like it's not a complete sentence. So, but like, is it a different y'all than like a, a Texas y'all? I, w- I would com- say it's comparable to the Texas y'all. Okay. Okay. Good. So <laughs> that South. Perfect. I didn't know if there was like Southern etiquette between the Southern states. Like, oh, this is a Texas way of saying y'all and then Arkansas, you have to say it a particular way. I would say there is some differentiation, but Texas and Arkansas are pretty close. Um, okay. So I'd say we have a lot of the same culture. Okay. Uh, literally yeah. the only thing I know about Arkansas <laughs> is Bill Clinton. So yeah, Bill Clinton, actually, believe it or and not, my, <laughs> my grandmother was Bill Clinton's PR advisor when he ran for governor in 80 and 84. So my family's actually really close to his family. Yeah. What? That's so crazy. Oh my gosh. Okay. I have more stories. For, for, for the second <laughs> podcast, we're going to hear all about Bill Clinton. Okay. <laughs> totally. So, so hot springs. Not, yeah. Hot springs to raise your backs. So I went to the University of Arkansas and then I knew I wanted to leave Arkansas and ended up taking a trip over the Thanksgiving holiday to visit a friend in Chicago and fell in love with Chicago. And literally moved there two weeks later. Everyone thought I was crazy. Everyone was like, oh, like, you're going to be back, like all this stuff. And I was like, no, I'm gone. (laughs) So (laughs) moved there two weeks later. Um, It was too, like, last minute for me to get in school. So I actually ended up taking, like, a semester off and working and then starting school, starting back in college in the fall. Uh, I went to DePaul University. Um, DePaul or DePaul? DePaul. DePaul. Okay, because there's two, I guess, one's in Chicago, one's in Indiana. So, So, like, silly question. They're close though. Indiana's like, yeah. you can throw a rock there from Chicago. Um, but yeah, so I went to DePaul University. I went to business school. I majored in accounting, minored in finance. And then I did a little stint in London um, for six or seven months. I interned there in finance and studied at the University of Westminster. Came back to Chicago, worked in corporate for a little bit, worked in public accounting. Um, and then, <laughs> this isn't necessarily tied to my career, but it is kind of the behind the scenes truth. I know you said you're going to grill me, so I'll give you the, yeah. I'll give you the real scoop. Um, Bring out my I, actually, <laughs> I actually met my husband at Electric Forest um, in Michigan, which is about three and a half hours away from Chicago. Um, What's in the Oh, okay. I was gonna say, like, is that a is that a forest that you can walk into? And you it's Rockberry, it in? Michigan, um, but it's Electric <laughs> Forest. It's like, um, I would compare it to like EDC or like Coachella, but honestly, it's like really like its own beast. It's like literally an adult's playground. It's an an entire forest, and they turn it into this like how do I even put it into words? Um, it's essentially like this, like art, like an art installation that you can like play and like work with. Like they'll like, you'll walk in and there'll be like neon strings and you'll like walk through an area and then you can like, there's another area that's got like pots and pans and you can like make your own instruments. And there's people who are like actually amazing drummers, like using the most basic things to create instruments from and like five people like creating their own little band. And then you go to another area and there's like a hidden stage in the forest, You go to another area and there's like a, um, almost like Alice in Wonderland vibes where it's like a teacup and then you go inside of it and then there's a smaller teacup and it's like a door and the door. It's very, what? very interesting. And they change the they change the installations every year. So they actually go out three months before the festival starts and have artists like creating all of this every single year from scratch. That's amazing. So it sounds like a Burning Man. Yeah, like, more like, like a little more like Burning Man. Burning Man, like art focused, but mixed with nature. And then yes. people are able to self-create when they're in the space as well. Yes. So you met your husband. You took like a little weekend away. Yeah, to, so we to met there. 
And it was like, it was very, I wouldn't say love at first sight, but like definitely love it in the first 48 hours. <laughs> wow. We knew pretty, pretty right away. Like I knew he was my soulmate. I didn't know if we'd be together. I was like, and people think I'm crazy when I say that. They're like, how could you not be devastated to say that you met your soulmate and that you might not be together? But like, it's just, I'm kind of a realist at the same time. You know, I'm pragmatic, my accountant background. So I was like, you know, I know how life works. Like I've lived enough. I, I've loved and I've lost. Like we'll see if it actually plays <laughs> out. Um, sounds kind of dark, but it's the truth. I love it. You're like, you're Romeo and Juliet over here. <laughs> but yeah, so we met and I was like, well, you're definitely my soulmate, but like, we'll see if we end up together. Um, and from that point forward, like we pretty much became best friends and we're talking every day. Neither of us really wanted a long-term, a long distance relationship. So it, it was pretty platonic at first. And like I said, we just kind of became best friends. Um, six to eight months later, he came to visit because he was visiting actually a friend in Michigan and flew into the Chicago airport and we met up, hung out. And like, it was a wrap from then, like for literally from that point forward, it was like, he came back to visit three weeks later. I moved to New York like a month after that. It like escalated he, very quickly. <laughs> and he lived in New York. So you moved yeah. to him? Yeah. So he lived in New York. It was like, I was unhappy at my job. I knew I'd been in Chicago for about five years. I knew that I would want to have some kind of change and I knew that I wanted to be in a major city. So I was like, maybe I'll go to California. Maybe I'll go to New York. Like I had those things kind of already in mind. And then we met. So it was really like the stars just kind of aligned in that way. I was, like I said, I was unhappy at my job. I was working in public accounting. And mm -hmm. if anyone has ever worked in public accounting, that's listening to this, then you know oh, exactly gosh. what I mean. <laughs> um, it's, 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 I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish it upon my worst enemy. So, well, so that's so that is interesting though, like just to back up a bit about mm -hmm. your career, like how did, how did you, you are pragmatic, but what drew you to accounting? Cause I feel like unless like your parents were accountants or, you know, family members, I don't feel like it's something that you're just, you fall into typically. Sure. Um, so I've always loved numbers and I've always loved math. Uh, so that's something that kind of originally drew me to it. I also knew um, that I wanted to be a businesswoman. So what I actually mm. did is I went to business school and I took, I was like, I don't know if I want to do accounting or finance or just general business. So I took finance classes. I took accounting classes. And like I said, I already knew that I'd love numbers and was kind of like had that predisposition to um, mm -hmm. be really good at math. And that's, you know, not something that many people are. So typically when you're good at math, you usually utilize that in some way. <laughs> Cause totally. a lot of people hate it. So, yeah. um, so I took an accounting class and I had an amazing professor and I just really loved the class and I got really into it. Um, so then I took a, that was 101 and then I took 102 and at that, by that point, like 101 is pretty basic. So like even people that aren't that good at math can kind of get the general idea. But by the time we got to 102, like half the class was completely lost the whole time. And I started like tutoring people in my class and started like leading projects and just like really like kind of taking initiative and like really leaning in. And I was like, wow, I'm actually really good at this. Um, and I realized, you know, that again, a lot of other people were really struggling with the concepts. So I, um, decided to take some upper level classes and see like, maybe, you know, maybe this is the thing that's for me. Um, and I really enjoyed those classes as well. Uh, so it's just something that really kind of like, I was naturally pre like kind of had a predisposition to be good at. Um, and that's kind of what opened the door for me as I was like, Oh, I'm really good at this. It comes to me really naturally. Um, and I got like excited about it, which <laughs> like who gets yeah, excited I, about accounting? <laughs> see, this is what's so cool about you though, is I feel like you're this, you know, creative and you have this, you're this individual that like goes to music festivals in a wood in the woods, in the forest. <laughs> and yet there's this like very pragmatic part of you who really nerds out with numbers and is like, oh my God, are you guys like having as much fun as I'm having <laughs> doing someone's taxes? And so tell us, you know, when I think of accounting, my initial 
impression of it is like my accountant, I send him numbers at the end of the year. He sends me a thing to sign. That's basically everything. So I imagine there's more to accounting than probably doing people's taxes. Can you give us like a high level understanding of what it is? And then I want to jump into your next career. Sure, absolutely. So um, I definitely understand when people associate accounting with like a tax professional. Um, I would say a large percentage of accounting does operate kind of in that realm. Uh, Mm -hmm. I personally, when I worked in public accounting, I did, you know, taxes for a little bit for individuals and for corporations, S-corps, C-corps, trusts, estates, you (laughs) name it, pretty much everything. Um, In a four-month period, I'm pretty sure I did anywhere between five to 700 tax returns. That gives you a general idea. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel so. every time I'm doing it, I'm like, did I do this right? Did I like say the right things, give the right things? Did I pay the right place? Like all the websites are so antiquated when you're paying, you're like, Oh, best of luck. I hope they, <laughs> I hope they got the money. I know. Not and sure. you have to put your information in and then you just submit it. So it's like, I hope that doesn't go to someone else's like pay someone totally. else's tax bill. <laughs> totally. It is like, I, I, in a way I wish like someone at Google or something like in, instead of doing community service, they had to like fix the government's <laughs> websites. I'm like, with you. I, right? I agree with that. Just just recode it, make it user experience start here. You're this? Oh, no, no, stop, stop. Like I'm I've definitely probably paid to like the wrong tax brackets, the wrong you know, the wrong things, the wrong times. You have to like use your own notifications. I'm probably I always just feel like I'm breaking the law. So hopefully I'm not breaking the law. <laughs> But so anyways, to, to know all this stuff a little bit more innately and have a better understanding. So cool. Yeah, totally. And, you know, granted, while tax professionals are, you know, a good chunk of the accounting world, there's also, you know, other kind of niche industries, for example, auditing is a really, really big mm-hmm. branch. Um, and that's going to be so sexy. Yes, <laughs> super sexy. I actually love auditing too. But again, oh <laughs> I'm, I'm a math nerd. Like, I just like that stuff. To me, it's like being a detective. It's like you're like seeking stuff and you're like looking for inconsistencies. And then like, once you find something, then you're like, okay, well, we've got a scent. Like we're on the trail to like catching yeah. this. And then you have to determine like, okay, well, is this actual, is this just an error, like an accident? Yeah. Or is this actually someone covering up fraud, which is a whole nother ball game. So have it's like- discovered it, fraud? It gets really like- interesting. Um, I have discovered inconsistencies that I am not sure that how they played out, meaning that I found mm. inconsistencies and put it, you know, to higher up management and they cons- consulted, um, like an audit counselor board essentially. And, um, I worked, I didn't work on that client again the next year. So I'm not sure like how it all played out. <laughs> I don't know if that's a coincidence Google. that I got pulled yeah. off of the client or if that is. You're getting too close. Well, so no. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's definitely, you know, again, it has happened. I've never fully uncovered like a big fraud, but a lot of my higher ups had talked about large frauds that they had uncovered mm. and like how it had all played out and what had happened. Um, it's very interesting, that entire world, because like you are hired by the company, but at the same time, like you, ha- we usually have good relationships with our clients, but it's like a funky relationship because you're hired by the company, but you're also looking to find errors for the company. And if you find anything or the company's covering something up, then you like kind of become their enemy. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting dynamic, uh, but it's necessary. You know, we have that in place because of the SOX Act, which was essentially a byproduct of all of the Ponzi scheme stuff that happened with uh, Bernie Madoff, oh, God. You know, a lot of people's money. So it's like, that's why that's in place. So like, I understand, but auditing is predominantly for bigger companies. So for example, like um, if you are a public company or if you are a company who is wanting to do a public offering soon, like say launch an IPO, you know, for example, a lot of these big tech companies, I know that, you know, being in San Francisco, you're a lot closer to that hub. Um, and they have to have two years of publicly audited, essentially fully audited, 
uh, financial statements, even before they go public. So, you know, that's kind of where an auditor comes in is either helping people get ready for that or actually doing the audit once they're public. So that's another branch. Um, and another area that is pretty big, but kind of works on the kind of fringes that you don't hear about as much in accounting is stuff that's what I would consider like business management services. So for example, like being, um, and I did this whenever I first moved to New York, I worked in a boutique accounting firm um, before I started my own business, started doing business development and client acquisition for them. And we essentially were the quarterback for their entire financial life. So we would hold the accounting records uh, for their personal life and for their business. Um, a lot of celebrities, a lot of high net worth professionals, um, a lot of the stuff's in the New York Times, so I can disclose this information. Uh, clients like Carly Kloss, uh, Ashley Graham. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we had a lot of like high, high name clients, uh, as well as businesses and high net worth individuals. And uh, a lot of models, though, a lot of models, a lot of uh, producers. And <laughs> What was this firm? They were uh, like, oh, they, like CAA would just feed them clients, basically. <laughs> so it was actually a boutique counting firm. Um, it was KRA. I say was, it is still. They yeah. still exist. Um, it's in Soho, actually. Um, so, and it's a small boutique accounting firm, but they had like two or 300 clients. So it was like they had a reasonable size roster. Uh, and... I essentially doing business management, I would be quarterbacking everything for their financial life. So for example, let's say that I'm working with a producer. I am on the phone with HBO tracking, tracking down payments. I'm on the <laughs> tracking phone. Tracking them. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, I'm also, I would be, you know, on um, the phone with attorneys, looking at lawyers, trying to figure out like, what are the, what's the payment schedule? When are we supposed to get paid? What dates are the payments supposed to come? Who's paying them from where? Um, same thing for that's like amazing. managing credit card companies, managing bill payments, setting up insurance, like whether that's corporate insurance or like homeowners insurance, like it was really such a wide range. Anything that you could think of that would have to do with a bill payment, your bank account, or yeah. somewhere where were you were either receiving or spending money, like we handled it in some capacity. So that's why I say it was really like all encompassing. It's very hard to, it's easier to say what we didn't do than what we did do because there was so yeah. much. Um, but yeah, I would say business management services is also um, getting into that kind of niche of accounting was what kind of opened the door of possibility for me to realize that there was a world outside of kind of tax professionals and auditors that we hear about in public accounting, um, which is, you know, part of what planted the seed that led to me wanting to start my own business is because I started to realize that essentially there was another world outside of, you know, the traditional kind of realm of accounting. And I really loved it. It was very fast paced. Every single day looked different. You know, I rarely did the same thing twice. Um, that's something that is very important to me that, you know, n most accountants don't necessarily agree with. Um, makes me a little bit unique in that way. Um, also, there was a lot of front facing. So even though I had, you know, in public accounting, like if you haven't been in the game for like 10 plus years, maybe longer, it's very unlikely that you're going to be front facing with a client. There's so many like layers to that. And if you're not upper level management, you're never going to face clients because they have such big clients that you just, it just doesn't happen. So yeah. a benefit of being in a boutique firm is that I was able to, you know, with five years of experience, I was able to be front facing. And my clients were my clients. Like I serviced them from beginning to end. So I was doing the stuff down in the weeds, including like bookkeeping and data entry. But I was also doing high level stuff like strategizing with them about how to, you know, get HBO to grant them an extra $100,000 for the next green light pilot. So wow. it was so diverse. And like I said, every day was so different. Um, and I was going out and meeting with clients. I was working with individuals, but I was also working with businesses um, and companies. 
So it was so diverse and I got to experience so much that it really kind of opened my eyes to what's possible. Um, and it also, like I said, kind of got me in the position to start doing like client acquisition and business development, mm -hmm. which really actualized the possibility of like, I can do this. Like I can go out here, I can build a network and I can land clients, which really, really built up my confidence and was a huge catalyst into, you know, me feeling confident and powerful enough to branch off and start my own firm. So when you started your own firm, you were actually doing what you were doing for the small boutique agency and just doing it on at your own scale and at able to work with like the type of clients that you wanted to work with. Yes. Is that what you're still doing now? No. So now um, it evolved over time. So whenever I first started, um, I've always been the kind of person, and this is something that I think we're seeing a lot more now and like where people are at in society right now, which is I've always been the kind of person that like wanted to have a bigger impact. However, at that time, I didn't realize that that could be one thing. What I mean by that is like, I didn't realize that my life could be this like flowy, aligned, synergistic, amazing, beautiful space that I could just play in all the time. I thought, okay, I know I want to do other things, but I'll just do that on the side. And then I'll have my corporate career and constantly play this juggling act of like how to you know, how to kind of split up time between my side business and my side hustle, like I called it, um, mm -hmm. and my full-time job. And I just thought, okay, well, you know, I just have to work this nine to five to pay my bills and have money coming in and like have that kind of status symbol and that kind of like identity that comes along with like that high position. Um, and then I'll just do whatever I want to do to have an actual impact, to have meaning and purpose, like on the side in my free time. Um, and I lived in that way for a long time until essentially I had an opportunity to start working with another client and it was going to bring in a good amount of revenue. And I decided to work with them on my own. And I was like, hmm, I essentially started to realize that like I might have the opportunity to start to bridge those worlds. And rather than needing to like start a nonprofit or just have a side hustle that was a passion project that didn't actually make a lot of money to have a real impact, I started to understand that like, essentially like my trajectory did not have to look as linear as I had once believed. Um, and I started to realize that I could branch outside of those kind of traditional roles um, to really forge my own path and create a life that was really in alignment for me from the kind of hours that I wanted to work to the kind of clients that I wanted to work with to the way that I wanted to work with clients. So I will say it was a gradual process. It wasn't like a lot of times people are like, what was the defining moment? Or when did you know? And like, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't like that for me. It was very you much had like so much clarity about your husband, yet you didn't have a defining <laughs> moment for your business. I know crazy. for that, it was like an entire journey. Um, but yeah, it's like everything was building on itself. So every experience that I had had really set the stage for, you know, later experiences. And I totally believe that, you know, it was much more than coincidence. It was absolutely, you know, divine guidance and divine intervention that was kind of guiding me along that path. Um, but whenever I branched out on my own, I started an accounting firm. I started taking accounting clients, um, like, like you talked about, in the same capacity that I was um, when I was working in corporate um, and in that boutique accounting firm. And I started doing accounting and uh, kind of like similar to like outsource CFO work, which I still do a little bit of. Um, and I mm -hmm. also did some light bookkeeping, like setting up accounting records, training people's teams, stuff like that. Um, so that's what I started doing. And as I continued to do that work, essentially, um, about maybe six months in, I got to a point where I was making, like I had replaced my corporate salary. I was making the same amount of money um, a lot sooner than I had expected to. Uh, yeah. However, I realized that I wasn't fulfilled. I was like, I'm overworking. I'm working like crazy. I'm working with, you know, clients that aren't necessarily the clients that I want to be working with. And I'm not working with them in the way that I want to be working with them. So essentially it was like a wake up call where I was like, I've essentially uh, started my own business to take on all of the hardships of entrepreneurship with none of the benefit of being purpose driven. So that was a Which big wake up. 
which I think is a big problem. I just, I want to pause you there for a second because I think that's like a big entrepreneurial problem where, where people are craving that financial freedom, they're, they're craving freedom in, in general, yet then they end up being bogged down with more of the pressures because if the money doesn't come in, which I want to hear from you too. And I love, like, I know you made this pivot now to lawless balance to your brand and mindset and money mindset seems to be a bigger part of, of your business versus like doing the work for people. How has that shifted? And I know now last year I heard that you took 90 days of vacation. <laughs> uh, I feel like, let me see what the actual number is. I think it was 62, but that's 62, still, 62. That's okay. <laughs> so, so, so you're living more of that life that you kind of envisioned for yourself doing this Absolutely. new business of, of lawless balance. I love that the word balance is in it as well. So now the way that you work with your clients, are you working with them where you're helping them become financially fit and giving them the tools that you, you had at like the financial firm or, or how do you work with your clients in general? Yeah, so essentially, um, like I said, you know, it was, it was kind of a gradual process, but eventually like I, you know, started making investments in myself. I started investing in courses and programs and coaches and mentors mm-hmm. that were going to, you know, really help guide me along the way. Um, and I realized some incredibly obvious things about myself that everyone else had always known that I was like, why didn't you guys tell me? They're like, we just assumed you knew. You seem pretty self-aware. <laughs> Wait, like what? Um, like, for example, like being a natural born coach. Like I've been yeah. a coach my entire life and wasn't getting paid for it. <laughs> I've coached my friends and my family. I've always been that kind of person. I've always been... Yeah, I've always been a motivator. I've always spoke like that and talked like that and kind of went through my own life that way and done tons of personal development, spiritual development work and business development work. Um, I just never got paid for it. And honestly, I realized, you know, I had to unpack a lot of stuff with myself, stepping into the role of being a coach and operating more in like the money coaching space. Um, My title now, (laughs) it's a mouthful, but essentially I'm a money consciousness coach, um, Mm. which is a really fancy way of saying I help women heal their relationship with money. So there's a lot of money coaches, you know, kind of nowadays that are popping up online. And a lot of money coaches are more like, hey, this is how you paid on debt. Here's the strategy side. But they're not actually diving deeper into healing the actual relationship with money and starting to just not only shift the mindset, but actually heal emotional and spiritual components of our own upbringings and our own childhood trauma and family karma and generational beliefs that actually create the infrastructures in our own minds that kind of keep us in place when it comes to our relationship with money, whether that's good or bad. So can you talk more about that? Like if, if someone on this call is listening to this podcast and wants to start diving deeper into their own relationship with money, um, what are the first steps that you take people on or recommend that they get clear with? Totally. I think that, um, you know, money mindset's incredibly important, but it's not, that's not all. A lot of times, you know, people that do start to do a little bit of the deeper work in their relationship with money, they're like, oh, money mindset, that's it. I got my mindset down. Like, let's go on to the strategy now. But again, Mm -hmm. like you do have to do some of that deeper work. So I think mindset's important. I think getting clear around like, even just starting to observe your thoughts, starting to observe your patterns, observe your behaviors and your relationship with money, start observing your spending habits. Are you an emotional spender? Are you an impulse spender? Are you a saver? Are you likely to be like um, operating from a place of scarcity and be super fearful and anxious around money? Like just start observing what your relationship looks like and bring awareness to that. It's a huge first step. But once we start to bring awareness to it, now we actually need to say, okay, well, what do we need to do to shift that? And um, there's a couple of like key things. One of uh, the really important areas that I go through with my clients is we focus on um, essentially a kind of journaling, not the kind of journaling that you did in seventh grade when you wrote about your crush, totally different kind of journaling. (laughs) Um, But essentially where you do a brain dump, it's essentially a three-step process. Number one, you brain dump. 
Number two, you take a look at the brain dump and you start to analyze. You pick out themes. You start to notice these limiting beliefs that might be popping up. Um, and then once you've kind of identified and noticed those, then we start to shift them. And then what you do is you pull out the limiting beliefs, shift those limiting beliefs into from a disempowering narrative to a more empowering narrative. Mm-hmm. And then essentially you rewrite the entire journal entry as if either it's happening right now or it's already happened. So, and that's really, really important part that, you know, the active or past tense verb is key because if we're not, essentially, if we're not telling ourselves like, I am this, or I have already been this, mm-hmm. um, then we're still in that place of striving. We're still in that place of lack. If we're like, I should do this, or I want to do this, essentially, you're still creating a barrier of separation between you and those dreams that you want to actualize. And in order for us to really shift our relationship with money and shift our money mindset and really step into that place of abundance, step into that place of power, we have to believe that we're there. We have to believe that it's possible for us. We have to believe that we're worthy of doing that. And again, that takes, you know, a lot of unpacking. Uh, But there are some careful, uh, essentially, kind of questions to start asking yourself when you start to do this work. So um, if people listening aren't familiar, there's something that's called a money story. Uh, It sounds fancy, but essentially, it's just a combination of your beliefs and experiences around money. Um, But a lot of times, our money story is not our own. So some important questions to start asking yourself could be like, what was my parents' relationship with money like? What mm-hmm. themes did I notice? So for example, what, what phrases or you know, words did I hear them saying a lot? Um, things like money doesn't grow on trees or things mm-hmm. like we'll figure it out or we can't afford that. You know, it's both positive and negative. It's not to say that they can only be negative things. Um, but until we start to do the work of analyzing that, then we can't actually shift that because we don't understand kind of where we're at now. So it's, it's important to get an idea of where we're at now so that we can start to say, okay, well, I'm here. I want to go here. And then we can kind of solve for X. We can say, okay, well, what do I need to do to get there? Um, and as we start to go through this process, you know, a lot of stuff's going to come up. It's not just as simple as like, oh, my parents were good with money or, oh, my parents were bad with money. Like there's a lot of deeply rooted stuff um, that kind of forms during our, you know, developmental years between, you know, one and seven where we're really starting to kind of like get an understanding of the world and starting to really solidify what our belief system is and what our ideas are and the kind of person that we want to be um, and what we believe to be, you know, socially acceptable. And it doesn't help that money is a taboo subject. So a lot of times, you know, either your parents didn't talk well about money or they just didn't talk about it at all, which isn't necessarily Mm -hmm. more helpful either. So, you know, between our parents not wanting to talk about money and society not really talking about money and it being considered rude, Um, granted, you know, this is changing and I'm actively doing work all the time, both in societal context and individually with my clients to really try to destigmatize that and work through that. Um, however, like between our parents and society, um, not wanting to talk about money and school, not really teaching us or educating us on the things that we need to know. Totally. Um, I mean, even, it's not even just high school, even in college, if you didn't go to school for business, if you didn't go to school for accounting or finance, like you weren't going to get this stuff done. So the reality is the majority of us, even those of us who invested tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in post-secondary education really didn't get the financial education that we need. So that's a huge part of what motivates me to do what I do is not only because we didn't have it and we need it, um, and people don't talk about it. Uh, but also because of like my own background, like, you know, I was raised by a single mother um, and she struggled to make ends meet. She worked multiple jobs. And even when she would get some money in, it would be gone because she just didn't know how to manage it because she didn't have that skill set. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's also partly generational too, because, you know, it's, it's not all that long ago that women not only didn't have the ability to vote, but weren't really considered one breadwinners, but two, 
even people that manage the finances in the household, that was like the man's job or the husband's job. So yeah, even- oh, I think that's a really interesting point too. Like as women, we aren't as empowered to take control. I love the cat in the background. I've been hearing like <laughs> kittens and I'm like, I don't know. I just feel like we're in Arkansas with you right now. Like I hear it's the literally a wild cat. I hear that's a wild cat. Who just came to laugh. <laughs> it's, a, it's a friendly wild cat, but yes, it is not my cat. Oh my God. <laughs> guys Arkansas here you go <laughs> you know you, you get your own cat just hand delivered <laughs> to you by nature um well I know I, God, I have so many questions for you this is this is crazy because I feel like there could be like three different conversations where this could go uh go to but since we're still in a, a really weird time with coronavirus I, w- I want to wrap it up by asking you a little bit more pointed questions towards um the economy right now like we're in a a weird place this cat is loving you oh my gosh guys i'm on video and like literally all i see is like one two tail 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 two two tail 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 it's so good (laughs) lindsay's like do i touch it it's wild i don't know what to do (laughs) i don't know what to do with my hands it's also trying to jump onto my in the camera right now it's like (laughs) yeah hear me let me in let me in it definitely has a money mindset problem so let's talk, uh, let's talk tangibly. I, I love money mindset and I think that could be a, like a whole further discussion. And I, and I love also from your personal experience that in a way, like your mom's story was a big motivator for you. It's, you know, either consciously or subconsciously, just like you didn't want the instability. You wanted to have money in the bank. You wanted the house. You're now looking for a second property. You had the high powered job. And I think even the fact that you're an entrepreneur probably goes against like what your initial beliefs were um, of stability because a lot of entrepreneurship is super unstable. So it's cool to see that. Um, and, and to the point of the, the money, women talking about money, 100%. Like it's such a man's job to invest in stocks. Like I don't own any stocks. I don't even know how to find a stock. Where do you even get a stock? There's just this, I, I remember learning about it in the eighth grade and that's the last time I learned about it. It was math class and it was fun and we had fake stocks that we talked. So, um, I think it's really cool to think about like what we can impart on our future generations and our own kids and what kind of conversations we can have so that they feel more comfortable having these conversations with their parents. Cause I definitely didn't. So I want to talk to you about PPP and SBA loans and then, um, and then we'll, we'll start wrapping up sadly. Cause I'm like, Oh my gosh, I could seriously talk to you for, <laughs> for hours. So totally. let's talk about. I know there's a lot of people right now that are furloughed or laid off or, um, you know, their company's like, yeah, we'll hire you back. Maybe we're not quite sure. Uh, and for those that are, let's focus more on the entrepreneurial person right now, but I feel like there's been a lot of information and no information at the same time about both PPP, SBA and, um, unemployment filing for unemployment. Do you have any, uh, piece of it? pieces of advice or like thoughts on what you would recommend a client? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to make a quick mention too on something that you shared, uh, which had to do with investment. So I don't know if you ladies have heard this, but essentially there's a statistic that says that um, women actually experience three to $400,000 in lifetime losses compared to them, their male counterparts due to lack of investing. Insane. And and knowing your worth too, I think like. Oh, that's absolutely a factor not negotiating their very first paycheck and how they leave like 200,000 plus dollars on the table. Yeah. crazy. Absolutely. And it's definitely conversations we need to be having because if we're not willing to have these conversations, then it's not going to change. So, you know, it's, it's essential, 
that we have these conversations now more than ever. Um, but in terms of PPP and SBA loans, um, you know, I do want to say a couple of important things. Um, there's a lot of information out there, so I'm just going to kind of boil down some of the most important points to be thinking about. Uh, I've had a lot of clients that have reached out to me um, and even friends and family that have been like, am I eligible? Should I do it? Um, and the reality is, you know, um, just to be totally frank, the majority of the people asking me are not the fit for it. And the reason mm. that they're not the right fit is because you, um, number one, you need to to even apply, nonetheless, to actually get approved. But to even apply, you need to provide supporting documentation. And what that requires is either going to be a form, like a printout mm. from your payroll company, documenting your payroll costs, or two years of tax returns showing the wages paid. Um, and the reality is, you know, there's so many of us who are solo entrepreneurs, or maybe we have, you know, one contracted person on our team, mm -hmm. but we're not actually on, we're either not paying ourselves on payroll or we're not paying employees on payroll. Whether that's, again, because they're contractors or because you just have odd jobs being done here and there, or because you're starting out and you're doing stuff on your own. So the reality is if you don't have that payroll documentation, you're not going to have the supporting doc document that you need to apply. So that's the first thing to ask. So, to either of them, to PPP or to SBA? To SBA, uh, it depends. So it's going to depend on the financial institution that you're going through because mm -hmm. essentially a lot of people think that like the government or the IRS is the person that's like approving you for this. But the reality is it's the underwriter at the bank. So if you go to, for example, if you go to some of these bigger banks like Chase um, or, you know, Bank of America or BMO or anything like that, um, then... <laughs> you probably are not going to have as good of chances. Uh, however, mm -hmm. if you went to a smaller financial institution or like a credit union, um, they're typically more likely to want to work with you. And they're more likely to take in things like about your specific circumstance or even your character and your personality mm -hmm. and your tenacity, um, your business models, stuff like that. Like they're willing to take some of these more kind of intrinsic elements into consideration and give you more of an advantage versus the bigger financial institutions that are like, they got their five item list. And if you don't meet every single box, then you're out. So that's something to take into consideration. Um, but with PPPs, not only do you need to provide supporting documents from payroll, because that's really what it's for. A lot of people are like, yeah. oh, cool, it's just free money for my business. But the reality <laughs> is the reason that these things were created was to incentivize people keeping employees on payroll, not furloughing and not laying people off. That's the main reason that they're put out there. So I'll be totally transparent and say, um, it's interesting. Let me speak to this for a second because I have two different opinions in two different realms because they're two very different things. If you have been laid off, and you still have money, you got money saved, or you got money put away, or you have investment income coming in, or your, you know, your spouse works, or whatever that looks like. And you're like, well, I feel bad applying for unemployment because I don't really need it. And I just want to like people that need it to get it. I'm going to say right now, file for unemployment, take that money and put that money. Like the reality is you pay for unemployment through your taxes from payroll and have been paying yeah. into it this whole time. It's not, you're not pulling from like, thin air. You're not pulling from like invisible money that's coming out of other people's paychecks. Like you paid into that unemployment program to be there for you to need it in this circumstance. So you should use it. Even if you say you don't need the money, um, if you want to take the money and invest it, if you want to take the money and put it in a savings account, like a high yield savings account or a money market account where it's working for you, or even if you want to take the money and donate that to a charitable cause or to people who are less fortunate, who really need that money, do whatever you want to do. But I do recommend taking it. However, and the reason I'm saying that caveat is because I don't feel that way about the loans. When it comes to SBA loans and when it comes to the PPP loans, I don't believe you should take it even if you don't need it. That Those are, funds are limited. They are substantially limited. Um, so with that in mind, we really should be saving that for the people that really need it. Number one, because their business is going to tank without it. Or number two, because they're actively keeping people on payroll. Rather than trying to exploit it to you know, give ourselves a fat paycheck or have a nice little bonus or have some extra cushion, because that's really not what it's for.
So I found that interesting because, you know, you heard a lot about like Shake Shack got approved for PPP or an SBA. And so did Ruth Chris, like millions of dollars. And then they both ended up returning them. Um, but then you heard that there was so much money still left that people, I think, did have this fear that they would apply and that they wouldn't get accepted. So people just weren't applying because they were like, that's not me. I'm not capable or I'm not worthy. And I've heard um, that as well, unfortunately. You know, at, as a small business, I'll share some personal experience. Like I payroll myself, even though I, I'm only my, I'm the only full-time employee. I and you Costco. should. Let's as be you honest. Should. You should. Yeah. Which I highly recommend payrolling. Yeah. I just, it's so much easier than dealing with stuff at the end of the year. Um, but I thought it was interesting because I applied for PPP and I didn't get it. And then I, and I applied through Gusto, which is the company that I use for payroll. Uh, and my, one of my girlfriends was like, Oh, well you won't get it. Cause you bank with Chase. Like I bank with first Republic. I got it in a day. Like definitely switched to a smaller bank. And then turns out my accountant here at the beginning of all this, he's like, I'm going to apply for an SBA loan for you. Um, three months later, I got an SBA loan just like literally out of the blue. I, I totally forgot he had done this and I got approved for it. And I was like really impressed by the, the chunk of money too. I was like, wait, what? is this okay to take? I'm nervous to, to have a loan too. Cause I, you know, you don't want to be indebted to anything. And he's like, take the money, like take the money. It's worth it. So I was just, yeah, it's, it's curious. Cause it like this process was not clear. I didn't think it was clear at all. And obviously they were all making it up as they went, but, um, as an entrepreneur, if, if he hadn't applied, I wouldn't have done anything. Absolutely. And I will also say there's kind of a, you know, a, a bit of a caveat between PPP and SBA. Like as much as there is some overlap there, PPP is going to be more limited. They've only granted a certain amount of funds for that mm -hmm. through like Congress only approved so much money. So there is kind of a cap to that. But when it comes to SBA loans, that's essentially a small business loan that you're getting through the bank, through the financial institution. And yeah. it's highly unlikely that your financial institution is short on cash. There's no, yeah. like there is, because like, obviously like we know, like, money doesn't just go up like to some infinite ridiculous number. Like there is a certain amount of money that's in circulation right now. Um, but the reality is that they can afford it. So yeah. I would say I'd be a little bit more flexible and a little bit um, maybe more forgiving or lenient um, on the SBA side versus the PPP. But a couple of quick things to think about. So for example, um, I know a lot of people are like, am I going to have to pay it back? I'm worried that I'm mm -hmm. going to have to pay it back. Also, like, let's be honest, a loan at a zero to like an incredibly low, I would argue anything less than 5% interest is healthy debt, healthy debt. And I personally, this is something that isn't talked about a lot in the finance community, I think is worth saying mm -hmm. um, that I work with a lot with my clients around, which is that this idea of leveraging debt. And that's what the mm -hmm. rich people do. Like rich people are not utilizing their own money. They're not like selling their house <laughs> to go make an investment in a business. They're leveraging. So how they're leveraging is they're leveraging existing investments. They might be leveraging a fixed asset. They might be leveraging like a um, a line of credit against one of their businesses or against their home or whatever yeah. that looks like. And the reason I mention this is because if you can say, for example, that I have student loans, I'll, this is like something people hype up a lot. So <laughs> say that I have student loans at three or 4%. Um, and I all of a sudden get $20,000. I can either take that money and I can put it on to my student loans and pay it off completely and be like, cool, student loan debt's off my back and have no money left. Or I could take $20,000, invest it in the market, invest it in real estate, get an 8% return, 15% return, up to 20% return, depending on the investment you're making, and actually make substantially more money and even use the gain on investment to pay down that <laughs> debt and still have more money left over. So that's the idea of leveraging debt. And that's how the rich get richer. It's because they, number one, they understand this concept. Number two, they have 
they have capital to leverage, they have assets to leverage. So like I said, like, if don't be worried, like I might have to pay it back, be glad that you have the opportunity to get it. Consider it a blessing already received and just oh. understand that the monthly payment that you're going to make is not going to, it's not going to break the bank. That money saved you. That money saved you in a time. It's honestly, I feel the same way about credit card debt. I know that sounds crazy and it's very kind of like countercultural for the narrative that we normally have around it, especially in kind of like the debt-free community. But at the end of the day, like that's number one, that's a record of blessings already received. That's an awesome reframe for anyone that's struggling with the debt that they hold. Um, number two, it also means like someone trusted you enough to say like, I know that they're going to pay me back. Like they're good for it. So someone believed in you. Someone was willing to invest in your business. Someone was willing to invest in your hobby. Somebody was willing to invest in you being able to spend more time with loved ones or someone was willing to invest in you taking that family vacation. You know what I mean? So like, these are important things to us. And at the end of the day, like it's so easy to feel guilty about like holding debt or having money or spending more than you make. And don't get me wrong. It's not sustainable. It's not something we should be doing over the course of our life, but like there are times and there are seasons and what we're going through right now, this is a season where that's necessary. If you need to rack up a little bit of debt, that's okay. If you need to take out a loan, that's okay. And you have to spend money to make money. Oh my gosh, Lindsay, this is so good. This is exactly what I think everyone needed to, to hear too, because there is this like mice-like way about ourselves of just hoarding and, you know, I'm not going to even order food because I'm, I have to save all of my dollars for everything. And boom, 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 boom. I, I just think you, you said it said it so eloquently and so beautifully and just um, gave us permission also to to not be so fearful of money and big money talks and bringing in, bringing in big money, spending big money to bring in big money. Um, Absolutely. You have to be willing to invest in yourself. I think it's insane when people, especially in the coaching space, but really anyone in the online business, like you're asking people to invest in you, but you're not willing to spend money. You're not 100%. willing to invest in yourself. Like it okay. all comes from that place. And like money has to stay, money is energy. And it has yep. to stay in flow. Energy has to be flowing. If you just like stop the flow of energy, you're going to stop the flow of money. It's not just as simple as like, oh, it's a one-way street or, oh, I can stop spending it, but I'll keep making it coming in. Like, no, it's all secular. So if you're not willing to like open your hands up and let that kind of free flow mm. from you, it's not, it's also not going to free flow to you. So it's completely connected. I completely agree. Well, on that note, can you tell our listeners how they can find more incredible wisdom about your balanced life and learn more about your program, Instagram, all that jazz? Yeah, absolutely. So you can check me out on my website. Um, I've got some awesome resources too. I got some budget sheets and uh, mm. free wealth meditation if anybody wants to tune into that. Um, and especially if you're feeling like fearful or anxious and not even like as a whole, because, you know, sometimes we just have, even those of us who have done a lot of this work, sometimes you just have an off day. So if you're having an off day and it just happens to be when you need to have a sales call or you're going to that job interview, um, then definitely tune into the meditation if you just kind of want to increase your vibration and just tune into that kind of, you know, frequency of wealth. Uh, but you can find that at lawlessbalance.com slash resources. Oh my gosh, this is amazing. I'm doing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you can also find me on social media. I'm usually hanging out on Instagram at Lawless Balance, L-A-W-L-E-S-S-B-A-L-A-N-C-E. I love your last name. In a way, I wish you incorporated it even more into your <laughs> into your business. Like we let you know, we crack down the law or something. But we're without law here. <laughs> we're working we on it. Balance. I love it. <laughs> well, Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. Enjoy your new cat friend and the birds. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. No, this is incredible. Seriously, so much like actionable, tangible stuff. And we'll definitely have to come up with a 2.0 option of this because I feel like we can dedicate a whole conversation to money mindset, another whole conversation to investing and how to like get the confidence to invest. So um, 
definitely look forward to more conversations in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.